0: Welcome to Blessed Foundation's Future Proof Series.
1: Konait is an interactive designer. And also um, an engineer and illustrator and I asked him to also tell us a bit more about his journey up to this point because of this practical side and and design side. I thought that was very interesting and important and Hunaid is now um, master's candidate at at MSc Innovation Design Engineering and MA um, at Imperial College London and the Royal College of Arts and um, in his previous work and in his current work as well he Focus on building solutions for um, for, for different uh, types of um, disabilities and um, including people with muscular dystrophy, uh, but also looking is looking at pollution and um, our relationship with food. Uh, so it is really my pleasure to um, pass over to um, tonight, and we'll have approximately 25 minutes talk, and and then followed by informal chat. So thank you again.
0: Hello everyone. Uh, Thanks so much, Sylvia, for the really kind introduction. Um, But yeah, like uh, Sylvia mentioned, I'm Haneed, And yeah, I'm just going to be walking you through a bit of my my work today and kind of just sharing some stuff. Um, So yeah, like she mentioned, I'm a designer, illustrator, and engineer. I'm based out of Mumbai, India. I've kind of been born and brought up there. Um, Moved to London to pursue the MAMSE Innovation Design Engineering program at Imperial College London and Royal College of Art. Um, it's a 40-year-old program kind of been running uh, between the two institutions and it's a double master's program as well. And yeah, more recently I've kind of started tutoring at the Somaya School of Design back in Mumbai as well, so I'm kind of engaging in uh, academic work in that sense as well. And, uh, Really the intersection that my work kind of really revolves around is people, technology and the motivations they have within their everyday lives and how they kind of engage with technology and and the motivations that kind of make them do what they do. And those are kind of the themes that I really like exploring in my work. Hopefully that kind of just comes out uh, as I speak about it. Um, but yeah, like uh, to kind of give you a bit of a backstory about how I've kind of gotten up to this point is um, I essentially started studying mechanical engineering back in 2016, so I'm, from that technical background I kind of did mechanical engineering as my uh, undergraduate, and I've always kind of had a relationship with art. I kind of did illustration, just did kind of random stuff here and there. It was never really institutional, I would, like formalized in, in my work. In 2017, I kind of got the opportunity to represent India in Red Bull Doodle Arts kind of finals in San Francisco. And we kind of had artists from 25 countries kind of meet in San Francisco and just kind of explore VR art. And that was kind of the time when VR art kind of came into the zeitgeist of kind of everything. It was just kind of really coming out and HTC Vive had kind of come out with their first kind of VR headset and digital art program. So this kind of really spiraled me into a lot of different kinds of work. so I kind of picked up illustration as a result of that. I kind of really built a practice around um, making illustrations. Uh, did a lot of work with indie musicians back in India. Um, just made kind of album covers for them and other kinds of illustrations and everything. And at the same time, I was doing magazines uh, for different, different kinds of clients. Uh, and as, as I kind of just graduated from my undergraduate degree, I just kind of moved into a UI UX design job. So that was kind of how I formally transitioned into like a job that kind of was designed explicitly, a more formal corporate kind of design job where it was kind of really about making digital products for clients. Um, We were doing a lot of work with uh, uh, non-governmental NGOs in India that were kind of working around um, policing and uh, women's safety and how that relationship is kind of mediated by NGOs and how they kind of facilitate a safer environment and uh, kind of just enable help seeking behaviors in women and children. So, that was kind of the backstory for these digital products. Um, but a really kind of uh, thing that was kind of lacking in my work was I was kind of moving just towards design. It, it became very kind of oriented towards um, how I'm producing visual communication work. I was doing illustration, I was doing UI UX design. I was kind of distancing myself from engineering quite a bit, from the technology part of it, making things and kind of just building those things out. So, that, that intersection was something that I was just kind of really craving and which made me want to pursue the Innovation Design Engineering program. So, yeah, like I mentioned earlier, it's uh, it's a program that really kind of brings together people from... So, sorry, it's a program that's housed in the um, Imperial College London and uh, Royal College of Art, kind of a double master's degree and joint kind of uh, collaboration between the two. And it's been running for 40 years, uh, kind of really kind of old program, one of the oldest ones at the RCA as well. And uh, yeah, the program essentially facilitates multidisciplinary collaboration between people from very different walks of life. And um, a really kind of strong focus of the program is product innovation and seeing how designers can kind of push the limits of uh, emerging research and kind of use that to kind of make creative outputs through creative experimentation and just kind of play around with research that's coming out of uh, the scientific and academic world. So really interesting examples are uh, you might have maybe seen some of these products. One of them is a Gravity Sketch, which is a 3D making tool. That's an outcome of the program. Uh, seaweed packaging, devices that capture tire particles that go onto the wheels. And some, program, uh, some outcomes are even like candy for older adults. So it's, it's a really broad range of kind of projects that come out of the program uh, as a result of that multidisciplinary collaboration. So yeah, with kind of really the intention of exploring that uh, intersection and kind of uh, building a breadth of work, I kind of came, moved to London, packed my bags, and it's been about two years since I've uh, moved into the program, and I'm almost kind of about done with it. And I'll kind of initially just kind of glimpse through a few projects and then maybe talk about a couple of them in depth, and uh, yeah. Um, The first one is Plate, which was, this, this was more of just a, kind of speculative, creative exploration of the fu- future of kind of eating and how uh, human food interaction is kind of, m- m- maybe might evolve in the future. And it, it seemed really interesting that the, the plate as an object was kind of quite static, it hasn't kind of been uh, changed in, in, in a way where a lot of other products are being smart now and that, that cutlery and plates are kind of something that's uh, evolving alongside. So we just kind of did like a, this was a joint collaboration with another kind of peer of mine where we just kind of really played around with different kinds of foods and made like a multi-sensorial plate where each action on the plate responds to kind of how you're eating it and things move around and kind of change uh, the experience of you eating it. Um, some other kind of projects were uh, making a digital privacy plugin, uh, which really caters to the fact that there's a lot of kind of passive decision making that goes on when you're browsing the internet. Uh, it was more to do with digital privacy and how uh, people often feel cheated when, or kind of feel like, uh, yeah, it's it's not that the data is not being kind of handled the right way. So we kind of tried to work around that. And th- there's also furniture that I've kind of worked on. Um, this was share. Um it's it's kind of a piece of social furniture where it's nine objects that can be juxtaposed around to ki- in different formations to kind of make a different kind of sit- seating arrangement. And the project was really kind of born out of the insight that people often find uh, or, or manage to sit in places where they're not supposed to sit. So that, that kind of was really the provocation for the project in the sense... Uh, I noticed stairs to be like an architectural feature that that's not meant for sitting, but people do kind of enjoy sitting or just kind of find uh joy in sitting on those every in in, in, in those places anyways so yeah, this was kind of uh an exploration of furniture um, in that sense yeah but uh yeah, so keeping all of that exploration in mind, a project that's really kind of informed my practice and kind of has really um yeah, so, so solidified kind of the kind of work that I do and and uh, enjoy doing is is jammies, um, and they're essentially musical instruments that are designed for people living with dementia, and I kind of just really uh, briefly kind of walk you through the journey of how I kind of came across the kind of proposition and w- what was the development journey like. So the world's population is aging. That was kind of really the I, I was having a few personal experiences with my grandparents and that kind of. Uh, made me aware of like the broader situation with how global population is aging, and and alongside that, the the systems and products and and everything that we kind of have around us is by default designed for younger people. It's not necessarily designed for a population that's going to be aging and will have different needs in the future. So that was that was kind of really interesting kind of trend. And in the background, another kind of uh, another worrisome trend was dementia which was projected to kind of uh, have have an increased precedence over the next few years uh, especially in the uk uh, given the the rate of aging and what dementia essentially is is it's a set of symptoms that kind of over time impair cognitive function impair behavioral function and kind of really have an impact on the on the person in, in terms of kind of uh, how they behave how they live and and their memory and and those kind of aspects of living and all, yeah almost one in six people above the age of 80 in, in the UK are affected so it is it is quite a prevalent uh, kind of condition that people experience and at the same time I was kind of really um th- the another really important thing to kind of note about dementia is that th- we don't really have pharmacological solutions at this point to kind of counteract uh, the condition th- there's no kind of uh cure for dementia so the most significant impact we can really have on the lives of these people is improve their quality of life through through different means, not through medical interventions necessarily. And in in that kind of exploration, what really kind of uh, kind of struck a chord with me was uh, music and the impact music has had on people uh, living with dementia. And this quote kind of really captures it well. It, we tend to remain contactable as musical beings, and some level at, up until the end of life. Um, we kind of uh and it, it's it's kind of, there's a lot of research around it as well as uh, the f- the sense of musicality is the first thing that kind of comes into uh the human kind of uh, uh, awareness and it's the last thing that leaves us as well and uh, yeah, and at the same time, I was kind of speaking to people, caregivers, who have had experiences with uh, parents who've had kind of dementia or have been caregivers for them as well. And, and music really kind of resonated with a lot of them where the person really kind of came back uh, into the room with them when they kind of were listening to a particular piece of music that had some personal value to them or, or kind of maybe a song from their wedding or something like that. Um... And it is quite an institutionalised practice within the UK as well. Music therapy is something that's kind of practiced. it's it's professed by the NHS, recommended by it, there's a lot of funding, uh, a lot of really interesting organisations doing really good work. The Lost Chord, for instance, is one. Um, But if you notice something in the last two pictures, is that the instruments they have access to are quite simple. The percussion instruments make single, kind of monotonous sounds which in, in some senses is justified because their cognitive abilities are impaired and, and they have kind of limitations in in how complicated of an instrument they can engage with. But at the same time, um, if you go on to kind of Amazon and you type musical instruments for people living with dementia, a bunch of toys for kids show up and, and it, it's kind of a reflection of how um, solutions for uh, kind of an another group of people is being qualified for uh, and or, like a demographic that it's not really designed for and at the same time while they kind of have impaired cognitive function their sense of self in adulthood is quite intact and giving them these objects and these kind of infantilizing uh, instruments can be kind of really uh, can, can really have an impact on their mental health and kind of just just how they how they perceive themselves as well in in that sense So yeah, there was this kind of really uh, balance that had to be struck or, or there's this dilemma, in a sense, when it comes to dementia, that too much autonomy is quite overwhelming. But at the same time, you do need some instructions. But that can lead to infantilization. So there's that kind of balance that that had to be struck. And this kind of uh, this this kind of relationship was really the provocation that I kind of based the project around. Was uh, how might we design new ways of interfacing with music for people living with dementia in order to improve their quality of life. Um, and yeah, the kind of response to that is jammies. So essentially jammies are a mus- uh, they're musical instruments designed especially for people living with dementia. And what they allow them to do is jam along to music that's of personal value to them, of, of autobiographical significance. Um, it could be a song from the wedding, the song that they first listened to the, with their first child or something like that. Um, but the key thing that they let you do is that they let you play along and jam along to this music and make a melodic contribution without any uh, prior technical ability of, of music or kind of knowledge of music or how to play an instrument. and. How they manage to do that is essentially, you have a digital uh, autobiographical library of music that's curated by a caregiver. And every time you kind of engage in a session or you're kind of listening to a particular piece of music, it, it, it processes through a software and a few notes kind of based on insights from music theory are kind of picked. And those notes are assigned to the five keys on the instrument. And irrespective of how you kind of, the order in which you play those notes, they're, they're designed to kind of sound melodic along with the piece of music that's being played. And it, it's quite achievable in the sense, if you think about most of the popular music that has come out in the last kind of 40-50 years, a lot of them, I think that's, that's quite a... I think people who might know music better than me might have a better understanding. Of it. But it's based on a four chord progression, I believe. A lot of that music can be kind of broken down into that very simple uh, set of notes. And and that's kind of the principle that, that allows you to uh, kind of make a melodic contribution, in that sense. And then I kind of expanded the, the concept as well to, to other kinds of uh, benefits in terms of kind of uh, incorporating cognitive stimulation therapy, which is kind of using your different parts of your body and engaging them and keeping those kind of parts of your body intact, because again with dementia you're, you're going out less, you're kind of engaging physically with other, other, people, other people less, and it's, it's a lot more uh, difficult to kind of engage in those activities. And, ooh, there's a slide missing there, but yeah. Um, there's some engineering that goes into kind of making things like these. So there's microcontrollers kind of, just kind of uh, building out these these kind of things. There's a slide missing for some reason. But um, the part of my process that I really want to highlight is like, it, it starts off with things that look like this. It, it, they're just kind of really simple, stupid, silly looking prototypes that are like balloons attached to like a plank foot or some, something like that. And it, it's, it's about kind of really, Uh, being able to take objects to the people that you're kind of hoping to design for and and that has really helped me uh, in in my process personally, just kind of taking those artifacts and speaking around them and having conversations around artifacts rather than just abstract conversations. And at the same time, like I mentioned, this this project kind of really had a profound impact on the work that I've done up until now. It it really kind of solidified my interest on this intersection of human-machine interaction, accessibility, and recreation and at the same time I kind of had another insight or or revelation about the fact that a lot of the discourse around accessibility disability and these these themes is very focused on uh, rehabilitation it's about sensors and monitoring these people and kind of their lives and and just kind of in a sense it's quite invasive and and uh, and it is about monitoring and and not not as much about uh, recreation and how do they engage in leisure so that's kind of the the gap that I've really kind of wanted to focus on in, in my work and yeah, build, build that out further. And uh, yeah, so this is almost kind of a project that's building on, on, on top of that insight. Uh, and this is kind of my thesis work right now, which I'm uh, working on uh, as we speak, but uh, it's called Midas and it's adaptive gaming controllers for muscular weakness and particularly for people living with muscular dystrophy. And, uh, yeah, adaptive gaming controllers in the sense accessible gaming controllers that can adapt to a person's changing needs, in in that sense. And and there's not much I have to say about this project since it's actually kind of still going on. But uh, to kind of give give you like a brief understanding, it's about 20% of all gamers worldwide identify with a particular disability. So that's a huge, huge uh, percentage of a demographic or like a market that does kind of identify with disability needs. But their kind of needs are often, uh, gaming innovation hasn't really kind of prioritized gaming accessibility if you kind of look at the industry trends. And the biggest barrier today is is the affordability and availability of uh, suitable adaptive technology for different kind of needs. And especially with motor disabilities like muscular dystrophy where you have weakening muscles uh, over a period of time, Activities like gaming that are indoor can be done within a low stress environment low activity environment become even more important um, Because yeah, that's kind of a primary form of social engagement and kind of engaging with people in that sense But yeah, I really I think the most interesting kind of insight that I've had out of this project was I've been working with people who are gamers are accessibility journalists and have muscular dystrophy, so they kind of are really uh, supporting me in this work But we kind of did an exercise where we just kind of tried to make ergonomic-shaped controllers for them, like what's the best for you in in that sense. But uh, a symptom of muscular dystrophy is also muscular atrophy, which often makes the hands curl in certain ways. So you you don't necessarily have hands that are kind of just weak, but are are normal in a sense. But they are uh, curled beyond beyond a certain kind of voluntary control, so you can't necessarily kind of stretch them out and everything. So each person really has like a unique uh, situation or circumstances with with respect to their hands. And, And what Grant, which is one of the people that I've been working with, said is, if I was to kind of go out and try to make ergonomic controllers for people with muscular dystrophy, I would have to make a new one or a unique one for every single person. And that was kind of like the defining insight for the project, which is why I moved away from the kind of concept of having an object that has buttons on it to to kind of having a glove or kind of a, ha- having an interface on your hands instead, and what that essentially then affords you to do is kind of use any kind of an object that's ergonomic for you and is comfortable for you. It could be a glass of water, a mic, or whatever that you you find ergonomic and hold that as like a controller or an input interface. So it's it's broader than maybe just gaming in terms of computing as well, in terms of operating wheelchairs or engaging with music. You could. Uh, essentially use an interface like this that that senses uh, the force you apply against an object rather than uh, having a fixed object that that you have to conform your hands around. And that's kind of the process of development. These are some images of the prototype that I've been working on. Um, That again is the image of the prototype. That's just some visualizations, but uh, yeah and the project has quite a bit so that's the prototyping that i've been kind of working around a lot of it is around uh textile uh e-textiles so working with conductive fabrics to make pliable sensors that can detect this kind of uh, force application really reliably and and can be used as gaming input and and just kind of experimenting with different techniques using conductive thread embroidery those kind of things um yeah i it's it's a little uh, messy right now, but I'm happy to chat about this uh, later on as well if anybody has any questions. And uh, that kind of brings me to the last project that I want to talk about, and, and in a sense where I kind of mentioned ID really has pushed uh, or does push kind of designers to kind of go out of their own practice and the kind of interests they have into into projects that, that they wouldn't necessarily do otherwise, and this kind of is a project that uh, I've, I've, I would kind of want to spend some time on it's, it. Really, it's a project that's really close to me as well. It's it's called Guerrilla, and essentially it's a device to capture particulate pollution from urban stormwater runoff. And it's a group effort. Uh, I, have a, I have three other co-founders along with me that are working on, uh, we're working on this right now. And yeah, to kind of just walk you through what this uh, project is about. So every time it rains in our cities, uh, the rainwater washes off of the built environment, picks up a bunch of particulate pollution, like tire particles, uh, heavy metals from brake pads that kind of come off of cars, um, pathogens, all kinds of stuff from the built environment. Even like road paint from roads is, is kind of part of the uh, microplastic pollution that kind of contributes to this entire situation. And all of that goes into the gully pot that we see on the side of the roads. And most cities in the world don't treat this at all. That goes into the river untreated. And it's in in some kind of parameters it's comparable to toxicity with sewage, so it's just as almost just as bad as 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 that, um, and yeah, uh, the UK especially and EU are quite lacking in terms of regulation and kind of really doing something about this. The US and Oceania regions have some regulation to kind of regulate uh, what goes into our rivers in in that sense, and. And it, it is quite quite a significant contributor to ocean pollution. About 30% of all kind of particulate pollution comes from this mechanism of of rain just kind of washing into, into our rivers. And, but at the same time, I feel like uh, ocean pollution, or, or it, it, it seems like a very, it seems like an immovable object, it seems very distant from us, is very abstract as a problem. Um, but this visualization really kind of helped us it, it made it almost personal for us, for our team. Uh, what it is essentially a map of roads in London that have the most potential to be polluting uh, to our environment and to the River Thames. And they're just kind of color coded by uh, the, the potential of pollution and the amount of traffic they get. And what we found was right here is where our studio is in Battersea. And that road is supposed to be one of the most kind of polluting roads in London. And uh, Usually I would have a while of, of runoff uh, that, that we kind of carry around to kind of show people, but I kind of missed that, miss bringing that today. But yeah, it, it just being kind of really that close to us, really moved us to kind of try to come up with an intervention for this, for the problem. So yeah, the response to that is Gorilla, which is, it's essentially a, it's a device that can go down into the gully pots that we see on the side of the road, and it can separate particulate pollution from road uh, rainwater, without any electricity, moving parts, or, or any membranes. And, yeah, so these are some kind of prototypes, it, it's meant to go into drains like so. Uh, you can see like a visualization of it going down here. And at this point we have a proof-of-concept prototype that we've kind of demonstrated the principle of it working with is. It's um, a quick demonstration of how it filters the water. So essentially what's happening is the device that we just saw, the long tube thing that we saw the water kind of goes down into that device and the water gets separated into two streams. The one that you see on the left is what would stay in the gully pot at the bottom of it with the concentrated pollution and on the left what you see is the uh, clearer stream of water that would go down into the drainage network and eventually going into the river or the the sewage treatment facilities depending on the city you're in. Um, but yeah that's kind of the efficacy that we've we, we've been able to kind of, at this point, uh, demonstrate about 98% efficiency in terms of capturing particle pollution above 200 microns. Um, but an interesting, uh, ki- kind of, uh, a very simple insight that kind of the project really came about from was essentially looking at sedimentation, which is if you let water sit uh, still for long enough, it'll just kind of settle down, and like the bad stuff, it'll become clearer in a sense. And uh, yeah, yeah, don't ignore the (laughs) rest of the gif, it's kind of irrelevant, but uh, yeah, essentially what we noticed was because the rainwater is so dynamic and it's moving when it's moving into the into the gully pot, the water doesn't actually have time to sit into in in the gully pot that's that's uh, part of the infrastructure right now. They actually have a ditch that's built into those things so that the water can fill up to a certain level and then it can settle down and then kind of wash into the drainage network. But yeah, it never gets the time to do that because of the kind of flows we get. So our our experimentation and kind of the entire process was really just about how do we speed up this, uh, this process of sedimentation and how do we kind of separate the particulate pollution from the rainwater quicker. Um, yeah. Before I kind of uh, show you a bit more about the process, like the, these are the some organizations. We've already filed for a patent for that particular project, and we're trying to uh, pursue it as a business as well. Where we recently won the Mayor's Entrepreneur uh, Competition for 2023 as well, where the winners in the environment category, and we're, yeah, we're just kind of uh, really looking at how we can work with different organizations. Where in talks about uh, piloting this with Devon uh, Borough and uh, the Borough of Richmond. But yeah, that's, that's kind of all the work that I had to show, but there's, there's a couple of reflections that I've had kind of from all the different things that I've done up until now. The first one is about it's, it's So these, this is the team that uh, I've been working with. Uh, I'm a mechanical engineer, uh, Henry's a sculptor, Adish is an electronics engineer, and Sam was a business analyst. So we kind of really came together in a very multidisciplinary team and and that obviously was facilitated by the IDE program and, and our master's program, but at the same time I think um, that's left me like with a, a, a broader reflection that um, multidisciplinary exper- uh, innov- uh, innovation really kind of has in, in my work has come about from multidisciplinary collaboration and that's been a really, really important part uh, of the work that I've done in a sense where it's obviously important to kind of have different perspectives and everything boiled down into, into what you're doing. But if you see here, it's, it's like a list, or it's just kind of a map of all the experiments we did leading up to Gorilla. So there's, there's a lot of different things here. There's mycelium uh, as a material that we tried to kind of uh, bioremediate the stormwater runoff. Uh, there were different kind of pipe geometries that we tried. Is, is there something that we can do with that? So there were a lot of different things, but there's also a waffle in there. And that's kind of the... Uh, that's, I think, the the thing uh, with creative experimentation is, is that that's really important because I think as designers we have the freedom to kind of do that kind of uh, creative, uh, just absurd experimentation, which scientific experimentation are, uh, often doesn't allow because of the rigour, rightly so, because of the rigour that it needs and the evidence that you need to provide it. But I think as de- designers we have that freedom to kind of just experiment with random ideas. and. I think multidisciplinary collaboration has kind of been the key to doing something like this. This was one of the ideas uh, from our team member who didn't have like an engineering background and it was it was something that we just kind of didn't uh, entertain at first, but this, this was kind of the experiment that kind of led us to a lot of really interesting insights about filtering and how kind of soft materials can be used in that sense. And the, the other one that kind of talks more about uh, ex- my work in accessibility and, and the things that I've done, arou- done around that is uh, something called the Curb Cut Effect, which is um, in, in about 1970s in Berkeley, in California, there were a group of uh, activists, disability activists, that kind of just poured concrete down the pavement to kind of make a ramp, and that, that was kind of the first, one of the first architectural uh, accessible features that that a city kind of implemented and it didn't necessarily it was kind of a very political act uh in a sense where they kind of really wanted to they almost got arrested for it and everything but now that curb cut and that ramp has become like a feature of almost every city in the every kind of modern city in the world where um it's being used by people with trams people with luggages uh bikes and all kinds of things so it's it's got a lot uh, that, that's kind of the insight that. Uh, accessibility innovation often doesn't kind of just uh restrict itself within the group of people that you're designing for it often kind of goes from one person to one community to analogous communities and a lot more so it's uh, the impact that you can have with just kind of you know starting with one starting with a very specific slice of the problem is is quite profound and yeah it's it's this methodology is quite interesting as well. I'd I'd encourage you to kind of go out and look at the experiments by Google uh, repository as well. It's, it's, uh, yeah, so you essentially kind of, uh, they kind of profess the fact that you start with a very specific thing or a very specific problem and take your learnings from that for a broader kind of uh, implementation. And that's something that I've kind of really tried to inculcate in my practice as well, where I try to kind of find a really, really specific part of the problem that I can actually have any kind of uh, impact on and then kind of try to take generalised learnings from it. But yeah, that's that's kind of about all I had to share. Um, something interesting is that where uh, the IDE programme is doing two shows, uh, from the 27th to the 2nd at Imperial College London and from the 13th to 16th of July at the Royal College of Art. Um, there's going to be a lot of really interesting work, I can I can really vouch for that. It's, it's a lot of kind of work that you wouldn't necessarily... Uh, Expect from a program that's really kind of involved in engineering as and has engineering as like really strong tenet in the program. It's sort it's of um, Yeah, there, there's there's all kinds of things that that you might end up seeing there I don't have examples on top of my head, but yeah um, Do come down. I'd be happy to kind of show you around and that's, that's my email if you guys ever want to reach out and that's uh, Yeah, my portfolio.
1: Yeah. Nice. Thank you